Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Welcome everybody to the four degrees to the streets podcast. Thank you for listening to all three of our earlier episodes. Welcome to episode four. We're so excited to do a follow-up to our very first episode in which we talked about um, the history of racism in urban planning. Nemo, how art thou, girl? How you doing? I'm good. I can't complain. Um, we're in the, the last, we're recording this the day before the last day of 2020. So I think that's all been on our minds, a lot of reflection and looking forward um, to what's next. So that's how, that's how I'm doing. I feel like a lot has happened with you since we last recorded. You walked across the stage, graduated. <laughs> yeah, a lot's going on. Um, the last quarter of 2020 has been everything of exciting. I'm glad that the year is over. Um, I'm ready for the new year. But I I'm, I see a lot of people saying like, oh, 2020 was the worst year. And I don't know everybody's story, but I'm very grateful. I feel very sheltered from a lot of the bad things that happened in 2020. I was able to stay in school. I wasn't impacted by a job loss so far. I haven't had COVID, just got a negative test result back today. So I know that a lot of people are struggling and I will continue to hope that things get better, but I really can't complain about how this year went, honestly. Yeah, I would agree. I think we, I think it's also taken a toll seeing how it, how it has affected everybody. And um, both, we talk a lot about race on this show, um, but also just overall the public health emergency that took over the whole world. Um, but yeah, just like, I think remembering to stay grateful. And I think if there's anything we can walk away with from this year, it's definitely that. Um, but like you mentioned, this episode has been, um, a long time coming because we, um, spent a lot of time in the first episode, uh, talking about planning broadly, and then a lot of the policies and programs that impacted planning in a way that was, maybe not so positive for a lot of groups and a lot of um, communities. And we looked at some of the policy decisions that altered those communities. So we looked at the Federal Aid Highway Act, Federal Housing Administration and their development, and then also um, racial zoning and um, segregation that happened in neighborhoods as well. And then we also talked about some of the um, influential planners at the time. So if you haven't listened to that episode, feel free to you can listen to this one first, you can go back to episode one, whatever you want to do, um, but you definitely want to get that, get that information in. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about the policies and programs that had somewhat of a different intention behind them. Um, we're calling them to the like attempted remedies. And so these are things that, these are policies and programs that aim to address some of the past discrimination and segregation that happened in communities and how they helped shape the built environment and as we see it moving forward in the future. Yeah, so we're gonna jump in and talk about kind of the same 
three topic areas that we talked about in the very first episode around housing, the environment, and transportation. Yeah, it's very important. We wanted to give this episode its own segment because we spent a lot of time in episode one talking about the problems that existed in the ways in which planning has traditionally and historically negatively impacted minority and low-income communities but there were a lot of policies plans and programs kind of the three p's if you will that attempted to rectify some of that injustice or attempted remedies we'll call them and so we wanted to talk about each of them but it's important to note that none of these policies or programs or plans are perfect in nature i think we still want to highlight the way that they're being challenged because of these policies were perfect our podcast wouldn't exist there'd be no reason for us to be having conversations around racism and classism and sexism and um, discrimination against disabled persons or persons of different religious groups if these policies actually reached their desired goal and maybe the desired goal was not to eliminate all of these issues so we're going to jump into each of them now I'll start and introduce our conversation around housing. So we talked a lot about the Federal Housing Administration and their underwriting manual and the ways that developers were enabled and kind of encouraged by the federal government to create segregated housing by prohibiting African-Americans and other minorities from purchasing a home in a neighborhood that had been previously designed for white people by not certifying or not insuring their mortgage. And so in 1968, we get the Civil Rights Act, um, President Lyndon B. Johnson, and all of the work of the civil rights movement, namely Martin Luther King and other leaders of all across our country. That Um, act is very long and has a lot of important elements and one of them is the Fair Housing Act of 1968 so that's title eight of the Civil Rights Act Um, and this act was designed to prevent and make discrimination in housing services illegal if you feel that you've been denied housing or a mortgage opportunity because of race, religion, sex, national origin, or disability, you can file a lawsuit against whoever that may be, whether it's the financial institution where you're getting your mortgage, the landlord, or even a realtor who won't show you a certain property. This is a really important act because it covers all phases of housing services. So it covers renting, selling, lending, insurance, the appraisal process, which has come up in a lot of news. I hope I can't wait to have that conversation. Servicing, real estate on, and even harassment from like a landlord to a tenant to try to get that person to leave. Initially, the law only covered race, religion, and national origin. In 1974, um, amendments were added to cover sex and family status. That meaning, you know, um, persons that identify as LGBTQ communities and um, non-gender conforming communities. And then there were also amendments in 88 to add disability status. And so there were a lot of cases against disability there. Um, The main kind of challenge that has been brought up with the Fair Housing Act is that it places the burden of proof on the victim. And so if you want to file a claim against someone for discriminating against you, say you wanted to go get a rental 
apartment and the landlord told you, oh, the, the, the unit's been sold. And then you find out later on that it hasn't been sold. They just didn't want you to live in it. You have to file a claim with the Department of Housing and Urban Development or one of these um, nonprofit groups and go through the legal process of proving that you were discriminated against. And that's a really hard thing to do, particularly if you don't have emails of them saying particular things or um, various things like that. So that's a big challenge of the Fair Housing Act. I feel like that's a really good point because aside from the limitations to access to internet or access to materials um, or even, you know, the prior knowledge to think, oh, I should track all of this just in case something goes bad. You're still just trying to have a basic need met of housing. And you or like you said, you have these burdens placed on you. And so it's like, how can you do both and really be successful at one? You're either going to get housing or maybe you'll win the case, which may take years. So yeah, that's that's a really hard thing. And so I did some research to I was trying to find out what is the status of this? How many people actually file claims? What are the results of these types of claims? Um, and so I wasn't expecting this, but I came across a really interesting um, report created by the National Fair Housing Association Alliance, National Fair Housing Alliance, in which um, they examine real estate owned properties or REO properties, which is when a bank forecloses on a loan, they take over ownership and maintenance responsibility of that property. So you purchase a house, you put a down payment down, you make these monthly payments to your mortgage provider, and you fall on hard times, you're unable to make your payments, and after a certain number of payments, the bank forecloses on your loan and they take over the title of your of your previous residence. Well, there is a whole lot of discrimination in how well the bank or other financial institution manages the property. And so in um, 2012 and 2015, this National um, Fair Housing Alliance took lawsuits against Wells Fargo Bank, Bank of America, and Fannie Mae, which is the federal government's mortgage lender, for their inconsistent maintenance of foreclosed properties in white and Black neighborhoods. So this organization found that um, in Black neighborhoods, the bank or the financial institution was leaving these buildings unsecured. They were boarding up the windows. They weren't cutting the grass. So there were overgrown weeds and, and grass and, and trees. And they um, did not have signage to indicate that the building was for sale. But in white neighborhoods, the building was well maintained and there were signs on the land quickly and the property um, was an attempt to be auctioned off much sooner. And so they took these people to court and they actually won a lot of money, something like a million dollars to distribute in these communities. And I just wanted to talk about that because they got the money, this association or this alliance received the money, but I would have liked to see that money go directly to the homeowners living adjacent to one of these properties that wasn't being maintained and how their land values were being depreciated because the bank wasn't maintaining the property on their end. So there was another 
element that I wanted to explore, which was the percentages of cases. And so we have all these different categories of discrimination, race, disability, family status, sex, national origin, religion, and then there's another category. Well, in 2017, the majority of the files claimed under the Fair Housing Act were about this disability status. And I just thought that was so interesting um, because it's showing that for whatever reasons, persons with various disability, whether that's a mental disability or a physical disability, are being discriminated against in the sale or lease or purchase or insurance process in getting housing. And um, that may look like developers not providing or wanting to provide the necessary um, amenities or facilities or accommodations for persons with um, a physical disability. But it may even just be that if I'm coming and I have a mental disability and it's visibly apparent that that landlord is making a decision that they don't wanna deal with me and whatever they assume might be problems that come up with my disability. Yeah, and I think it shows that there's still a long way to go in terms of being conscious about how we design spaces for all people, regardless of ability. I mean, I think even um, as someone who is able-bodied, there are just little things day to day and even working in the planning field, I do think about curb, you know, curb cuts and um, if a building has a ramp or, you know, an elevator, things like that. Um, I can think about it from the, from the point of view of the field, but even in, in terms of, again, just a basic need like housing, how are those things being provided when there's so many new buildings and new ways of living that are continuously coming up and being reinvented, but is um, making, designing these spaces for people, regardless of their ability, um, is that being, is that as, we're, as we continue to advance as a field and how we design housing, is that being included in the conversation is what I wonder. Yeah, and in a way, our entire built environment discriminates against persons with disabilities because it's inaccessible. If you live in a place and you can't traverse it safely and it's, just, and it's only you because of your physical disability or your mental disability that can't traverse it, then that built environment is discriminating against you. It's saying, okay, we're designing this for persons who are able-bodied. Um, in a way that we design certain neighbors persons who have enough money to drive a car and different things like that. Right. And I feel like it goes back to there are probably so many cases that are never become cases and suits because of the hurdles that one has to jump through to to file these complaints. Exactly. Um, it's more and then I think a lot of it becomes well, I guess this is just like the way it is. Um, and that's really sad. Yeah, in a way, it's like steering. Um, if you've been, if you attempted to move to, I don't know, a different neighborhood than where people of your ethnicity live, and you've experienced what felt to you like discrimination, but you couldn't prove it on paper, then you're just next time not even going to attempt to live in that type of neighborhood. And so it kind of steers people towards different neighborhoods. Another element of housing that we wanted to talk about was inclusionary zoning, which has been um, kind of new in the field, I feel like. I think New York City might have been one of the first, New York and Chicago. But um, I'm pulling this information from a couple different sources. Um, the HUD, which is the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and then I'm pulling from city health data as well as the city of Atlanta and the city of New York. And so all this will be in the show notes. So exclusionary zoning is defined as an affordable housing strategy 
that creates a zoning overlay over particular areas in a town or city. The inclusionary zoning policies require or encourage developers to set aside a certain percentage of housing units in newer rehab buildings um, for low and moderate income residents. And that determination of low and moderate income is dependent on this thing we call AMI or area median income. Nima, you wanna tell us what that means? It's based on salary for it's based on it's based on annual salary for the household. And so there can be a household of, you know, it can vary based on whether you're a household of one, two, three or four. Um, and so the total amount of um, there's mid levels for that for where that area is. And so for where you live, it depends on they look at all the salaries and all the households and create an amount in the middle of that that is defined as what the median income is for that area. Yeah, so for the city of Atlanta, so we'll look at a couple of them. We'll look at two, we'll look at the city of Atlanta and New York City. Um, and I chose these two because City Health Data is an organization that pulls rankings of city policies for various different programs. So they have one on green building and one on complete streets and one on, um, Tra trash and transportation. And so I pulled their rankings for inclusionary zoning policies. And so there are about 50 or so cities in the US that have an inclusionary zoning policy of various um, strength or teeth in them, if you will. And so there are only three that received a gold ranking. The, there's much more that received a silver and bronze ranking. And then a majority of them, unfortunately, weren't even ranked because according to this organization, their policy was so weak. And so the way that they measure the, the ranking of this policy is it's based on mandatory inclusion program evaluation and application of projects um, to sites with at least 10 units, as well as it applies to at least 20% of the project units. And so just three cities are ranked gold, those being Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, which I thought was interesting because they are also the same cities that have severe housing crises the ones with the gold rankings. And so looking at Atlanta's, which was not ranked, but is where I used to live and I was curious what it was. So they have two inclusionary zoning areas, one over the Beltline, which is a huge urban trail project, and one over the West Side neighborhood, which is just southwest of downtown. And theirs are based on 60% AMI, meaning that it's for a household who make 60% of the area median income. 10% um, of units for homes available to persons earning 60% AMI. 15% of units available for persons earning at least 80% AMI, or the developer can pay a one-time fee um, at 15% of the AMI per unit to, that, um, to the city of Atlanta for an affordable housing trust fund. The city of New York's policy has um, a very similar setup, except instead of requiring the developer to fit these units within the existing structure of their building, the city of New York's policy allows a density bonus. So density is basically, well, how do you describe density? It's like the number of things in one particular area. And so a building can be more or less dense if it fits more apartment units in the same um, 
parcel of land, which we call the floor area ratio or the FAR. And in New York City, you can increase your floor area ratio by up to 20% um, if you include units that are affordable between 60 and 80% of New York City's area median income. The biggest challenge with area median income or rather with inclusionary zoning is the requirement that in, that housing has to be affordable to people at a certain percentage of AMI. The reason being is because that area median income can be really, really high. And so even at 60% area median income of a place like New York City, that might not be what is technically affordable for a family, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think kind of the way to think about it, if the if you live in an area where a lot of people are working in, you know, certain career ladder jobs, or it's a high, you know, professional, you know, place, I'm thinking about DC, there's a lot of lawyers, there's a lot of policymakers, that makes the area median income really high. So for instance, the area median income for a household of four could be $100,000. 60% of that is an income of, you know, $60,000 for a household of four. Um, and even if we think about like what the poverty line is in this country, which I think might be between like 30 and $40,000 um, on the spectrum, depending of, on where you live, it can really not be, it can still not be accessible or you cannot qualify easily for some of these programs. Yeah, so really quick, I pulled up the data for New York City. And so 100% AMI, meaning the area median income for a family of four in New York City is $113,700. So that's what they earn in a year. That's the median income. Well, 60% of that for a family of four is $68,220 that number is where most apartments but most apartments are actually for affordability are constructed around the 80% AMI range and that's $90,000 so most affordable housing units constructed under this inclusionary zoning are for a household of four that makes $90,000 so if that's just two families each of those persons need to be making something like 45,000 a year Sometimes that's still too high for many people. And that's been the primary criticism from housing advocates is that the AMI standard is too high. We need to be advocating for much lower AMIs around the 30, 40, 50% of area median income and getting affordability at that, at that level. It's what's called um, very low income households, not just moderate income households. Yeah, and I think even the, the the way I kind of think about it when you know when we're in, taking it back to like elementary school math, and you think about mean, median, mode. Well, the median is that there's half the population is below that, and half the population is above it. So that's still a lot of people in a lot of these dense urban areas that are not at what this calculation is saying that people are making. Yeah, I think the median, not the median wage, the Minimum wage in New York City, I don't know if it is yet $15, but there's another graphic that shows, and we put in the show notes, the percentage of rental units affordable to persons earning minimum wage. And in New York, there's like barely, and I think it's like one census tract in which you can work a minimum wage job and have enough to purchase an apartment, even for a family of one. So that's really, wow. really damning. Yeah. Yeah. I think New York, 
DC and San Francisco, of course, are like the the most expensive places to live. And even if we're looking at the area median income, it still might be too high for particular families. And those are the ones that we really need to be servicing. Particularly, if we're thinking about homeless populations and um, young adults and things like that. Yeah, oh, I think I think it really shows even when you mentioned the gold cities being Chicago, New York, and LA, um, that this was put in place to um, to try to alleviate some of the housing the housing stress in these areas, but there's still adjustments and tweaks um, that need to be that need to be made in in the realm of housing. Um, but I think they're important to know because I I don't know if I even really knew too much about inclusionary zoning until I got to a place where I was looking for an apartment in the city. Um, and it was not widely advertised. It was really like in a lot of group chats or group pages, like, oh, I have an IZ unit. You trying to get this next unit after me, I'm moving out. You know, it was kind of by word of mouth um, that people had access and they went super quick. And it was either you made just an over amount or you made just not enough. And so, yeah, that was my, that was my experience. Yeah, and housing, I mean, we can go on with housing forever because it will always be something that people need and that it seems like we don't have enough of. Um, I wanted to talk more about the low-income housing tax credit program and HOPE 6, but like I said, we could literally be here for hours digging into each of these elements of housing. Yeah, I think that would be, as we think about future episodes, I think that could, you know, both looking at HOPE 6, but also looking at um, uh, the low-income housing tax credit projects, and also the idea of planned cities and planned developments. I'm thinking about um, Columbia, Maryland as kind of used as an example a lot in like the, one of the planned cities in the in the country and I know they also had a program with I think it was like teachers and firefighters and different fields and their goal was to also try to create that mixed income um, area um, by specifically targeting certain fields Um, and so looking at things with housing and how they work and how they could also be improved I think would be would be an interesting first episode Um, but I think here's a good place to take a break before we um, head into talking about environment and transportation so we'll be back in a minute Four Degrees to the Streets podcast brings you Block by Block, a new segment highlighting infrastructure developments from all across the world. Shout out to the state of New Jersey, New Jersey Department of Transportation, and NJ Transit for the dedication of $190 million to be spent over five years on renovations and maintenance at North Penn Station. Newark Penn Station, situated in the heart of downtown Newark, New Jersey, was built in 1935. Today is the seventh busiest rail station in North America. The first $30 million will be spent on aesthetic upgrades such as limestone cleaning, new lighting, and more. Because this is Jersey! All right, so we're back. And... I'm going to be touching on some of the environmental policies and programs that aim to address some of the past, um, both discrimination and um, pollution that affected communities. Um, And there's a lot, there's a lot of history with environment. There's a lot of different policies that aim to do different things. Um, And so we're going to have links to everything in the show notes. Um, But it's definitely an interesting history and one that is um, live, just like all of these um, policies that we're talking about that are ongoing issues. 
And so before I talk about environmental justice, um, it's a component of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So Jasmine mentioned earlier the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So in the 60s, this was one of the, um, one of the things that come out of the civil rights movement. And Title VI specifically is to prohibit intentional discrimination. And I'll just briefly read the statute. Um, specifically, it states, no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And so environmental justice became a part of that um, when the statute was changed to include that these programs or activities should also not affect human health um, or the environment. And so with Title VI, um, it's been a mandate since 1968, um, and then the Environmental Protection Agency, so the EPA, the federal agency that you know, oversees both environmental, any, you know, anything related to the environment um, and pollution um, had regulations that related to non-discrimination as well. And so specifically, um, similar to Fair Housing Act, if a person or a community has any issue with environmental justice, so meaning that they felt that they were discriminated against on the basis of race or color or class or anything, um, they would file a complaint. And uh, this has been one of the challenge areas, um, similarly, because the um, they would either have to sue or file a complaint. And uh, there's a lot of proof to be shown that they had specifically had adverse health impacts or the environmental, specific, uh, the environmental effects from the pollution created a hazard or that they were disproportionately exposed. Um, and I'm gonna talk about an example from Baltimore in a little bit later um, that gets at some of the proximity that someone could say that in terms of how they were exposed. Um, and then also that if they were denied an opportunity to be involved. And so um, whether that's through um, uh, something being built or you know, some, in something coming up in a neighborhood, did they, have the re did they have the reasonable exposure to know about the thing coming in? Did, were they, did they have a chance to provide public feedback? If they were denied that, that can also be included in environmental justice complaint. Yeah, I was just gonna add that the same way that proving housing discrimination is complicated, I think the environment piece is even harder to prove because at least at housing, you might have a document or maybe you recorded the interaction or maybe you're a person of color and you went in to look for an apartment and you just happened to know a white person and you sent them in and they got accepted into the apartment. I think with the environment, you have to be able to prove scientifically that this is impacting my health. And I think in many ways, science is very concrete and it can give you an answer, but that those environmental health pieces around science are based on studies and things. And so we eat and absorb so many things. I'm just wondering like, how does one actually prove that this thing happening near my house or in my neighborhood is impacting me this way? And I can tell definitively that it's not something else. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's even another layer is that you have to prove the the impact, but then also having to prove that the impact was done in a discriminatory way. 
Um, and I think in terms of the environment where it's such a, like, it's all, it's all of outside. <laughs> it's basically the environment. How do you prove that one area or one group of, per one group of people were either targeted or left out of something based on their race or, um, or background, um, I think is another, is another, is another layer. And there's, I think I read there's, um, I think it was from the American Bar Association that there's years and years of backlogs so that even if a complaint has been filed, um, only 6% only of complaints were actually received, accepted or dismissed. Meanwhile, I'm living with this hazard in my neighborhood waiting for my claim to be heard, addressed, dealt with, read, anything. Right, exactly. And so it's like you're dealing with it and also sitting in the dark for a long time. Um, and the, the EPA has a 21 day time limit. And so that's a very small amount, 6%, it's a very small amount of complaints being received that are actually making it through that process in a timely manner. Um, and so to talk about environmental justice, which was an order um, signed by Clinton in 1994, to even take a further step to address some of the environmental justice issues. And so in the environmental justice executive order focused specifically on federal agencies rather than just federal, rather than just recipients that were receiving federal funding. Um, and so that, you know, whether that's a local government or um, a specific department or organization, if they received federal funding, then they could not they had to prove that they were not discriminating. This also made it so that federal agencies had to be non-discriminatory in their own practices from more of an internal way. Um, and so this required agencies to look internally and create strategies for environmental justice. Um, and they also, to accomplish the goals of environmental justice, because it's an executive order, they had to implement, they had to use policies that already existed to, uh, to address areas of the environment, such as the Clean Air Act, um, the Fair Housing Act, as Jasmine discussed, um, and then also the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA. And so NEPA is where you get at some of the um, access and informational pieces when it comes to environmental um, hazards. And it requires federal agencies to look at what the environmental effects will be um, and then also make a decision based on that. Um, and so one of the, um, when thinking about this episode, um, I found from the National Resources Defense Council, they did a national scan of local policies for environmental justice. And I thought this scan was really important because as we talked about in episode one, when you think about how much of an influence that local jurisdictions have on zoning and land use, they also have a lot of say when it comes to where, you know, where things are placed in terms of will this um, new facility or will this new infrastructure present an environmental hazard? And so to think about cities that are working to undo some of that damage, um, I mentioned Baltimore. Um, in 2018, they actually were the first city on the East Coast to ban a new, to ban any new or expanded crude oil terminals. And so this was done through a lot of organizing around community, around a lot of organizing around environmental justice. Um, and Baltimore actually has the highest rate of deaths caused by air pollution in any US city. And the residents are disproportionately impacted by a lot of the fossil fuel infrastructure that's, that's going on in the city. 
Um, and specifically in terms of proximity, 165,000 Baltimore residents live within a few yards of a rail track or crude oil trains and terminals. Um, and so if there was ever to be a explosion, they are automatically hit. And even that's, you know, worst case scenario, but on a day-to-day -day basis, they are being exposed to both the pollution, the noise, um, and even just the, the unsightliness of it. Um, and when you think about Baltimore's history, um, they were one of the first cities to actually pass a housing policy to have segregation be legalized basically. Um, and the redlining was one of the things that made that possible. And if you think about Baltimore today, when you see it, there are a lot of areas that you can see are visually disinvested and I think are remnants of this history. And so it's really, it's sad to think of the whole city basically being an environmental justice case that most of the black, a lot of black people are living here and they are also right in the, in the zone of where these um, crude oil terminals are being passed. So I think that was a step in the right direction for local jurisdictions so to see this history, to see what it's doing in the impacts and try to put a pause in it. So that's a whole nother battle is that you need to be prepared to present some real evidence because you might be fighting Coca-Cola or CSX or Norfolk Southern, these are major corporations that have money to go. They'll be in a lawsuit 15 years, no problem. Like, what's up right, with it? Toe -to -toe. You, you need to be like, so that's another thing is like, often these communities are not just of color, but they're also low income. And so it's like, I don't, I can't be spending my resources trying to fight you on something that you know you're doing as wrong. Like, I don't have millions of lawyers at my disposal to go in a battle with you over for 15 years. I'm just trying to get this solved tomorrow. Right, exactly. And I think even that it took Baltimore four years for that to kind of to pass is even an example of how long the fight can be. It all starts, it starts somewhere, but it, it's an ongoing, um, it's an ongoing fight. Um, and then I'll just give another example. Baltimore was a city that created a ban, but another um, example of undoing some of these environmental burdens um, is changing land use. And so uh, Minneapolis in 2016, they amended um, their code of ordinances to include a pollution control and uh, annual registration. And so that required that equipment that either does or has the potential to impact the environment has to be registered with the city for an annual fee. And that pollution impact fee um, is administered by the city's public health department. And so it was created specifically to incentivize businesses and households to not have those hazardous equipment, you know, if they know that they're gonna have to pay a fee for it. Um, and it was also, the structure was so that polluters would be charged by their emissions rather than equipment. Because you could have one piece of equipment, but the amount of emissions it's creating could be greater than the equipment of, you know, five things combined. Um, and so, and then businesses can also look at ways to reduce their admission to receive credits to be exempt from the fees. Um, and so the city found that the, the change in that fee structure um, decreased emissions by 18,000 pounds in the, the carbon output by 6 million pounds in the first year of the program operating. 
Um, and the, the control free, the control fees that are received by the city then goes back to target environmental justice communities. And so they have a green zones initiative that is a place-based policy that looks at improving health and economic development using environmentally conscious efforts, specifically in these communities that are facing a lot of the environmental pollution and um, economic uh, vulnerability to these issues. I wanted to add, you talked about NEPA and it's important for everyone to know that NEPA is not a, it doesn't force an agency to change their environmental hazard. It just requires them to assess the damage, basically. So you write your environmental impact statement and it can say, I'm going to build a pipeline through this part of Ohio or Utah or wherever, and it's going to require me to impact X number of waterways, period. And it's going to be bad. And that's what I'm going to do. And my there are other alternatives, but this is the alternative that I'm going to go with. And that's the policy requires you to assess the situation. And so with environmental justice, I think that's the biggest um, weakness of it is that in, as it applies in NEPA or as it's being used in NEPA, and I can speak to the transportation aspect, it just requires agencies to assess the damage. Now, that agency on its own may use good faith or good judgment and say, we're going to try to do something about it, but it really just requires them to assess the damage. And so I worked on a project once before where we looked at um, MPOs or metropolitan planning organizations all across the U.S. and the ways that they have their own internal guidance for assessing environmental justice impacts. And the differences are very wide. Some of them just have a map and it shows where all the projects are and where their quote unquote EJ communities are. So those communities that are race, um, low income and different things like that. But some of them go as far to say, X percent of our projects are happening in EJ areas and X percent of our projects are happening in non-EJ areas. And they might make a recommendation to shift some funding around, but at the end of the day, it's a recommendation that the DOT or the transit agency who is doing the construction of the capital funds for the project has to do in order they have to accept the MPO's recommendation at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you said like the the way that cities interpret it is wide, and then what they can what they choose to do with their with their assessment also varies. Like you said, they can either accept it, and I think a lot of times it comes down to the cost. Is it going to be more costly to accept or change their existing plan that they've been working on for two three years, or is it going to be within their budget to just continue going with it as they were? Um, and so it's, I think with the Minneapolis example, I think it's a good way of targeting the money to get people to change habits and be, and behaviors. Um, but I think we'll transition over to transportation and there's two areas that I wanted to touch on, um, specifically the creation of the federal transit administration. And some may think, how is this a planning remedy <laughs> or how is it like, they just, you know, monitor and you know provide oversight for transit systems but i think especially in the first episode we talked a lot about the negative impacts of the development of highways across the country um, and when the federal transit administration or fta um, was created as a subset of the united states department of transportation or usdot um, when it was created in 1964 it was really one of the ways that 
um, planning and policy could combine federal funding to address transportation excess for people in regardless of their city's size or whether they live in a rural community. Um, and so signed by President Lyndon Johnson, um, it created the foundation for federal, state, and local partnerships to have improved or expanded public transportation systems. And so this created financial assistance that could open up opportunities for cities to invest in transit in a way that they might not have had before, especially if they did not have their own funding to develop these systems. Um, and I think the access piece is important because this was a time when everyone saw that having a car was a priority, but having a car and having access to a vehicle till this day, both in the 1960s and today, is not something that exists for everybody. And so I think there's there's a lot to be said about the important the importance of transit. And I think FTA, when it was started, um, that was in that was created in mind. And so, as I mentioned, when you think about transit, that includes buses, subways, light rail, commuter rail, trolleys, ferries. Um, and then they also provide transit safety um, and oversight measures because not all transit systems are equal. <laughs> and when you're transporting thousands of people a day, um, they should be safe. And there's also, with, when technology develops, there should also be um, kind of a guiding body that's thinking about how how this is shaping these communities as well. I want to add that I think even the time at which the FTA was created shows a little something. So it wasn't created until 64 when we had been planning for highways for almost a decade. And so it was kind of like, oh, yeah, there are another way to get around this country besides using your vehicle. Um, and then the 60s is when we're having this huge civil rights movement and that's when we create the FTA. So I think that's really telling. The major challenge that I see with FTA is that it's grant-based funding. So that's a big difference in how we fund transit and how we fund highways. And in many ways, that's an equity issue in itself because transit systems primarily exist or, or high-speed systems primarily exist in metropolitan areas, primarily, and then the you think of like the core of DC or the core of New York or the core of Chicago has the most frequent um, transit and it's kind of like a urban versus suburban versus rural battle where like highways are clearly designed for people who are living further away from the city and have to commute via car whereas transit is for people who are living in the core or the metropolitan area and more money is being funneled into highways than is being funded into transit. And so we see how that ends up in our society where someone can go to a bus stop and no one would ever think that if you drove a car that there shouldn't be, the road shouldn't be paved and there shouldn't be stop signs or yield signs or street lights. But when you ride the bus, you could reasonably walk up to what is supposed to be a bus stop, right? Bus stops and air quotes, and it just be a sign. It doesn't tell you what bus is coming, when it's coming, where it's coming from. It's literally just a sign that says MARTA. And that's the infrastructure that we provide. Maybe there's an arrow. Yeah, maybe there's an arrow and that's the infrastructure that we provide for people riding the bus, but you would never allow that to happen for someone driving in their vehicle, the equivalent of that for a vehicle. Yeah, Jasmine, I think that's a really good point. Um, I don't even know if I've thought about that consciously rather, you know, I think the, yeah, like you have to compete for anything that's not related to 
making vehicles travel as fast and as far as possible. <laughs> um, and I think it does come from the development, the, I think it does come from the priority of the highway system and then this being an afterthought. And I think in that structure, it kind of remains that way. Um, and an example I was gonna give of one of those grant programs, not specifically um, in FTA, but under the USDOT um, is the BUILD grants. So it was previously known as TIGER grants, um, Transportation Investment Generating Economic Recovery. And it is now known as BUILD, Better Utilizing Investments to Leverage Development. So same kind of purpose. Um, and a lot of these are either kind of transit adjacent or thinking about um, reimagining roadways to um, you know, e either become safer. Um, but this is a program that DOT puts out, but the funding is limited, you know, year to year um, it changes and they can only do a certain amount of projects. Um, and so again, it becomes a battle. Um, and if you go on the website and we'll have it in the show notes, you can see all the projects that they funded in 2020 to kind of get an idea of what projects are awarded, um, but it doesn't necessarily show there was probably was a lot of great submissions that just couldn't make the cut. And so how will those cities fund those projects if it's not in their, if it's not in their budget to do so? Um, and I think as we think about roadway priority, um, another transportation example that I wanted to touch on um, was the development of complete streets. And so traditionally, a lot of cities are built around car dependency and single occupancy vehicle travel. And with increased demand, for people to drive over the last you know, 50 years, um, it's seen as convenient and it's necessary. And so a lot of planning for these roadways have been done to alleviate congestion. Um, and if there's anything that is gonna potentially slow down traffic, it's seen as a hindrance. And so that could be seen as including more signaling, um, having more, having you know, sidewalks that could potentially make the road more narrow, um, including crosswalks or you know, flashing, um, flashing signals and also including space for public transit on the road, whether that's a streetcar or a light rail or buses. Um, those are things that are seen as a hindrance to traffic flow. And I think that with the development of complete streets, it was seen to address these safety concerns and also the environmental aspects of it and access, which has kind of been a theme throughout this transportation conversation. And so the National Complete Streets Coalition um, was formed in 2005. And I'll just read their statement um, that a complete streets approach integrates people in place into the planning, design, construction, operation, and maintenance of our transportation networks. This helps to ensure streets put safety over speed, balance the needs of different modes, and support local land uses, economies, cultures, and natural environments. And so with the build grants, um, you'll see that a lot of cities are requesting things that can help them achieve their complete streets goals. And the, Complete streets came, well, it's been, it's been around for a while, but um, Oregon was the first state to actually have something in policy that showed um, that this was a goal of theirs and that they wanted to make the planning and design of streets safe for everybody, regardless of ability or access or income to, to do that. And now across the country, there are over 1600 policies and more being developed and passed each day. Um, and as we talked about in episode two, and with a lot of cities passing ordinances for racism as a public health crisis, a lot of complete streets policies that are passed are ordinances, which means that there's nothing binding actually making the cities um, create, their, create these changes. 
And so the National Complete Streets Coalition as our organization has pushed for the last few years to really make sure that when these policies are adopted, that there's actually implementation behind it and that these cities are actually um, investing in making these streets safe um, and accessible. I think it's interesting that you brought up the comparison between the resolutions in the whole racism as a public health crisis and the ordinance as a complete streets policy because I looked at it a different way the I think the same organization the national complete streets coalition oh no rather it's smart growth America that has the dangerous by design whole network where they analyze pedestrian fatalities and pedestrian injuries on roads and that in itself is another public health crisis that more frequently than not persons that are african-american live in neighborhoods where it's unsafe to travel as a pedestrian and they have to cross large arterial roadways to get to a transit stop or to access work or resources or jobs or grocery stores and they end up in the crossfire of a vehicle and so i think there was numbers and i can pull it up later but i believe that the number like the in terms of pedestrian fatalities black men were the highest demographic to be injured or killed in a accident with a vehicle um and they normalized it based on like walking patterns and all of those things and still found the same thing so that in itself is a crisis and then there's a whole nother crisis that was explored in um Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm going to forget the name of the journal, but I will put it in the show notes, which showed another element. So there's one element of complete streets or, or dangerous by design in that if you live in an area that has an unsafe road network for non-motorized users, you're more likely to be struck by a vehicle, injured or killed. But then as a Black person, if you are traversing that neighborhood, you're more likely to be stopped by a police officer for jaywalking, for just being Black, for any of those reasons. And that can become a health crisis because now you might end up in an altercation and end up dead. And so there's a whole nother level of complete streets and transportation that are issues that don't really come to the surface when we just talk about planning in the built environment. Yeah, I know you're completely right that you can't have complete streets without the public health lens. Um, and that's actually just what I was um, about to touch on is, and I will be in the show notes, but I definitely recommend folks take a look at the latest um, 2019 Dangerous by Design report. Um, specifically, Jacksonville was actually the sixth most dangerous um, state and metro area um, based on the number of pedestrian deaths and the annual pedestrian fatalities um, per 100,000 people. Um, and so, like you said, Jasmine, they it does break out specifically which groups are most impacted. And older adults um, were, older adults specifically, um, people of color, specifically Native American Black and Hispanic populations are most likely to be involved in a pedestrian injury or fatality. Um, and then they also found that the lower metro areas median housing household income. So we were talking about um, AMI earlier. So the lower the, the lower income an area is, um, the more dangerous it is for people to be walking. Um, and so there are all these things that are uh, stacked against 
um, people who are literally just trying to get from A to B <laughs> in the best way, in the best way they know how. Um, and I think that report shows a lot of the, again, the way that things were intended to be and then who they actually impact um, and that there's still a long way to go with first, you know, a city can implement, can adopt the policy, but then they actually have to lead, they actually have to address the physical design of the roadway and then also who's being affected more. Um, yeah, the Jacksonville article that I'm referencing is um, by ProPublica. It's called Walking While Black, and it came out in 2017. But it'll be in our show notes for everyone to read. Um, and this research group specifically looked at the police department and the tickets that they were issuing and the, the demographics of the persons receiving the tickets. And then they looked at built environment conditions. So some tickets might have said, like, crossing without a crosswalk and so they went to the intersection and there wasn't a crosswalk present to cross in from the beginning and so that's been a complaint the vision zero thing also is to reduce enforcement and really look at um neighborhood design as opposed to looking at enforcement of pedestrian behaviors so we were looking at um all of these policies and programs and plans and their attempt to remedy an injustice or a discrimination. And we wanted to highlight one that we felt actually ended up turning into something in the built environment. Um, and so we highlighted this program in Seattle, the uh, uh, Seattle Viaduct. That's kind of the way we got to it, our thought process. Okay, thank you. I could not remember for the life, for the life of me. Um, but it came to mind specifically because there was a lot of worry that when they closed this elevated freeway along the waterfront, um, well, first it was, it was an old uh, bridge and then it also was vulnerable to earthquakes. So there was an earthquake that happened in 2001 that particularly damaged it and kind of alerted everyone to know that in this seismic, seismic region that is vulnerable to earthquakes, it could happen again. And so when the when it closed permanently in 2019, in January 2019, there was a lot of, they were calling it the Seattle squeeze. Um, there was a lot of worry that there would be increased traffic congestion. Um, and like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, what are we going to do? This, this freeway is closing. What's going to happen? And so what the city observed was that people actually ended up driving less, taking transit more, um, and also biking more. And so to prepare for this, a lot of people knew they would have to change their day-to-day -day commute. And so they did that through various ways. Um, some people started taking the shuttle, um, some employers started allowing telework, um, some either chose to bike or walk, um, carpool, transit, um, and then, um, but the percent of people who were driving, who drove alone actually um, decreased as well. And so what was seen as a very, as what was going to be a stressful thing in terms of traffic, it showed that people's behavior, people's behavior actually could change. Um, and that even an adjustment in the built environment could potentially bring about, you know, different ways of getting around that kind of touch on some of these transportation remedies that we've talked about. Yeah, I think, I don't know why we don't talk about this as a great example in planning school more, um, because we constantly, are upset when cities or counties or state departments of transportation want to widen highways and we're like, it's just going to lead to more traffic. But I feel like we never point to examples of doing the reverse and how it didn't cause this big 
crisis that we were expecting. Um, and so I guess because it's in Seattle, it's like <laughs> kind of far. I'm sure if I went to school on the West Coast, I would have learned about it more. But because all of my education has happened over here in the Northeast, in the Southeast, it's kind of been like not an example. But I think that's a great project because we always complain about induced demand. I think I actually saw today that a, the state DOT in Texas is widening a highway. Um, and people are like, it's going to cause more traffic. You can't widen a highway and expect it not to cause more traffic because people who previously weren't using that route to get wherever they had to go because the highways are widened they're going to start using that route because they assume that there's going to be more space for them and so you just end up with three lanes of traffic and then five lanes of traffic and then six lanes of traffic but you're always going to have traffic yeah and I think it's a pretty recent example as they kind of have been observing this since early 2019 um and I can say from my experience of living in Seattle when the viaduct was obviously was still operating. Um, yeah, I just find that transit is, you know, it's like, <laughs> I can't even say, I just actually really miss it, but I took the bus everywhere. I did not have a car um, when I was in Seattle. And so shout out to them. And I think it'll be a really good case study, like you said, for other examples of changing highway infrastructure projects that can show that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have, it's not gonna, the the city is not going to spontaneously combust <laughs> if something with the highway y'all gonna be all right y'all right be all right <laughs> right um so there's that um were there any other projects that we didn't cover today um we I think we just <laughs> wanted to talk about and we talked about this in episode three um the racism Oh no, that's episode two. Wow, we have so many now. <laughs> episode two, racism as a public health crisis. We talk about the New York City Community Parks Initiative, but that's another really good example of a city implementing a policy change, like on the ground, impacting the built environment, a tangible project, try to address uh, injustice. And so the injustice here is that parks in low-income minority communities were being underfunded for at least 20 years and so the current mayor and parks commissioner got together to come up with a way to redistribute funds from parks in neighborhoods that have consistently received capital funding to parks and neighborhoods that have not received capital funding in at least 20 years and so a really good way of taking money and moving it from places that have too much and putting it in places that don't get enough. I thought that that was a great project. And if we can do that with transit, and if we could do that with um, housing, mm -hmm. I would just be overwhelmed <laughs> and enthused. Right. No, that's real. Um, well, thank you all for rocking with us um, for episode four. Um, we drop episodes every other Tuesday. And you can follow us on social media, on Instagram or Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Um, feel free to connect with us, send us an email, leave a review, um, you know, send us a message. Um, Jasmine and I, we are, we are, we are on it. We will, we will respond. We are, we are real people. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you think. Um, so definitely stay, stay tuned. And don't forget to check out our article in the APA Women and Planning Division. Um, 
Hope you guys read it and like what we have to say. And we'll talk to y'all soon. Peace out, y'all.